Hello and live from the time we're actually recording this, but not live when you listen to this. This is the Geek Roulette Podcast. This is one of your hosts, Mad Mike Spriegel. And this is what? I don't know. Jaunty John Lundquist or something? I don't know. Yeah. Jack. Jaunty John Lundquist. Jerk ass John Lundquist. Wait, no, not that one. Jack, Jack off John Lundquist. Well, you know, you do you. Hey, that's not how, if this is your first time listener, that's not how we normally don't intro the actual show itself. I just been, for some reason, been watching a lot of YouTube, and I noticed that, like, all YouTubers have that same, hey, what's up? It's blah, blah, blah. Welcome. Yeah, you know, you got to get those 10-year-olds' attention somehow. Yeah, but how do you get their attention if you just have the same intro, like, in all these different podcasts, like, the same kind of, I, I don't even know what the best way to describe that kind of intro is yeah i don't know just overly unnecessarily energetic i guess screw it i'm re- i'm re- we're redoing it right now hi uh welcome to the latest episode of geek roulette this is normally how we start an episode and i am one of your hosts mike spriegel and i am the other host john lundquist i'm not jaunty this time or jacked off or whatever you're not jacked off oh <laughs> oh dang it Sad sound. Thank you for joining today's episode. We are going to be trying a different type of format episode, which we will refer to as the face-off episode. The face-off episode, John and I will each pick three topics that we try to determine what the best answer for is, and then we debate each other's answers. In the event that we have the same answer, then we just talk about the same thing, but that's what today's episode is all about. Uh, just some housekeeping. Feel free to leave us a review if you like on how we do during our episodes. We always appreciate the feedback and subscribe us in whatever formats that you use to listen to our podcast. So all of that happily out of the way, we're going to go into our recommendation segment. So I'll start off because I like talking nonstop and I'm narcissistic and like the sound of my own voice. Damn Skippy. No, damn Jif. Yeah, Jif is pretty crappy. Skippy's good stuff. No, Jif is better. All right, that's going to be a conversation for later. That'll be the next face-off episode. The, the peanut butter wars. We would just spend like 45 minutes just arguing about peanut butter, you know? Oh, we could do it. Oh, I know we could. Anyhow, recommendations. What I would like to recommend, something that just started up about past few weeks or so, is the latest season of Archer on FXXXXXXX. I don't know how many X's they've added into that, but you can watch it on Hulu or you can watch it live on FX Infinite X channel itself. This uh, season, I like so far. It's not that I haven't liked the previous couple seasons. Not to spoil if you've not been an avid watcher of Archer, to give you at least a brief overview, it's about a secret agent that works in an agency that basically is a very just half-assed agency. And that's how the show's format goes for several years until later down the line, one of the main characters is put into a coma. And then the past three years of the show has been basically that character in coma dreams, basically living out different genres each season ranging from like traditional like old 40s adventure serial to space age to just all over the place and it's not like i don't like those seasons but this season is a new return to 
form, almost like going back to what made the show good, but changing certain aspects of the status quo. Uh, H. John Benjamin does the voice of our tree. You may also recognize him from Bob's Burgers as well as many other voiceover work that he's done. But I've always liked Archer, and I think watching this season really connected with me more as I think versus the previous seasons in terms of how they're just going back to being a spy agency instead of all the genre bouncing. So I'll uh, give it a watch. If you've maybe lapsed out over the past couple of years, Archer on FXXXX, or you can also watch it on Hulu as well. Yeah. That's one of those shows I'm going to have to give a good binge to. Cause I remember watching most of the first season just because, you know, I'm horrible when it comes to watching TV and movies. I never really finished it up. So, <clears throat> but that's definitely on the to-do list because it's good stuff. Um, my recommendation is actually something I read a couple of weeks ago. I kind of binged through. It's a trade paperback series called Paper Girls, um, written by Brian K. Vaughn, who's done other things like Why the Last Man, Runaways, um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. He's pretty darn good. Um, pretty much anything with his name on it is going to be a good read for you. And the art is by Cliff Chiang, who's done Wonder Woman and a few other things, which I can't recall off the top of my head. Um, I don't want to get too much into the plot of it, just because it would be fairly spoilery. There is some time travel involved. It involves this group of paper girls that kind of meet on Halloween night, which they call Hell, Hell Night or something like that. Um, and all sorts of crazy stuff happens, and from there it just kind of goes just and gets just crazier and crazier. Like I said, I don't want to spoil too much because it does <clears throat> bounce around quite a bit. There's a lot going on, a lot to pay attention to. And after finishing it up, it does it does seem like the kind of book that's going to reward uh, repeat reading. So it's something I might go back to again, just to kind of pick up on certain things that, you know, you aren't necessarily know that just something just should be paying attention to or you know dots you don't necessarily know to connect the first time through but uh it's great stuff a great read with great art uh paper girls and i believe it's also been optioned for a tv series on some streaming platform i forget which one i want to say amazon but i'm not entirely certain um who knows if that'll ever see the light of day but for now you can read the comic and do that hipster i read it while it was you know before it was cool so paper girls go check it out and trade paperback i think there's six of them i believe so it's not too bad so yeah there we go i almost feel like every studio like immediately options on you know whatever new comic series comes out it's almost like a standard like it's almost like buying lottery tickets like they'll spend like thirty dollars on 30 different tickets hoping that one of them pays off eventually which well, it does it's just i always feel like yeah gets optioned almost immediately yeah a lot of them do and then there's that weird deal that i think netflix has with mark miller where he just basically writes comics and then they automatically get the the tv rights to him but i don't think they've actually started like filming any of them or anything although i haven't really paid much attention to him because a lot of the stuff he's written lately i haven't been a huge fan of but yeah it's kind of a weird thing yeah great gig for him yeah hey more power to him all right, moving on. Let's talk our arbitrary list. Today's arbitrary list. Uh, the reason that this kind of uh, list came to fruition is that with uh, the latest acquisition of Bethesda by Microsoft, which is huge in terms of now having fought like so many games in the Microsoft's pocket now, be it Fallout, be it the Elder Scrolls series, Dishonored, and so forth. One game that I was played a lot was the Fallout series, and you always had a companion to pet with you, which was a dog. And I sat there and thought, hey, if there was an apocalypse, which maybe we're not too far off from, what 
pet animal would you want to be your animal sidekick to travel the wastelands with you? So that being said, John, what's one of your animals you chose? Uh, the first one I've got is just like an eagle or really any kind of bird of prey, like an eagle, a hawk would work as well. Uh, and the reason I went with that is, you know, A, they can kind of hunt for you. They can, you know, go catch small rodents that are going to be easy to cook, easy to clean, all that fun stuff. Um, help you out in that regard. And then also, like, as far as defense goes, like, you know, you might be walking along and some, you know, band of idiots might think that, you know, you're easy picking, you know, oh, he's all by himself. But then all of a sudden, you know, this giant eagle comes down, just starts clawing their eyes out and stuff. So, you know, you've got that nice stealth thing. Um, you know, they'll be able to feed themselves and you know, more or less take care of themselves. So you don't have to worry about too much upkeep with them. But, uh, but yeah, I went with Eagle for my first one, you know, or bird of prey, I should say a Raptor. Mine's not far off from yours. I thought about it and I thought some sort of bird would be good. And I did think about an Eagle or a Hawk. I went with a vulture though, because once again, if you're trying to find like, you know, recently deceased things or where various roadkill and carrion is, Vulture is a pretty handy animal to have. Plus, they're already used to surviving in deserts and crappy atmospheres anyhow. Yeah, but are you going to want to find dead things, though? I mean, you're not going to eat the dead ones. Let's be very clear here. It's it's the wasteland, okay? It's not like you're going to be finding yourself fresh buffet kills everywhere. So sometimes you're going to have to eat some day-old, uh, you know, dead animal, John. Yeah, I mean, I if you're hungry enough, you can't be picky about it. I mean, sure, you might give yourself some violent diarrhea doing so, but that's uh, that's the price to pay living in the wastelands. Fire cleans all. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, so uh, we got bird of prey and or vulture. What's your second animal, John? Well, since we both just went the flying route, I went uh, another way, which probably kind of an obvious one and also related to the first one you mentioned. I went with a wolf for my second one just because... You know, again, a nice companion animal, you know, similar to a dog, so a nice companion there, just, you know, man's best friend and all that stuff, and something that can hunt for you, and definitely a vicious animal. I mean, he's going to be, you know, anybody who see, sees you coming down the road with a wolf is definitely going to think twice about messing with you, because that wolf will friggin' tear him to shreds in a heartbeat. Um, and again, similar with the, you know, the hawk or eagle or whatever, it's going to hunt for you, so, you know, it'll take down bigger things if you can see it, you know, if they're out there, granted the wastelands, but... Um, so yeah, Wolf. This is going to be the game of variations. I too also have a dog-like companion, but I went with what the sigil of my house is going to be, the coyote. And here's why a coyote, I feel, is better than a wolf, John. You're right. They're both hunters. But coyotes being smaller means they don't have to eat as much as a wolf. So that means you get a little bit more food for yourself. And again, if we're talking more adverse conditions... You're more likely to find coyotes all over the place than you will wolves. Yes, quite true. All right. right, my last one. My last one is probably stretching the limits of credibility for a bit. If we're talking post-apocalyptic, um, but I'm going to go with it anyway because you know, hey, <clears throat> it's all make believe anyway. I went with a bear. Yes, a big old friggin' bear. Um, much like with the wolf and everything, it's you know, if somebody sees you walking along with a bear, they are definitely going to think twice about messing with you. You know, the hunting aspect, um, you know, they're big. If it gets hell, if it gets cold, you can snuggle up to your bear and it'll keep you warm. Um, and yeah, just bears and they can hunt for you as well. And they're going to be more adept at getting like fish and stuff, which are more likely to be more plentiful in 
post-apocalyptic world, assuming you're in a place that has that sort of resource around you. But yeah, I went with bears. Bears are good. I almost went with bear. And the reason I didn't was because, again, size of animal. That bear's going to probably need to eat a lot. So I thought about it. And I, at first I thought about, well, what about an animal you can ride? I'm like, that's fine. But then is it really a sidekick if you're riding the animal? So then that's when I settled on octopus. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> that would be just dumb. <laughs> it's like, well, it's my pet octopus. He's dead. No, uh, I went with a puma. I uh, decided I needed a feline to help counteract the dog. And you know what? You got something that's a lot more, you know, jumpy and active. And again, a you know, very decent hunter itself. And you know what? Puma. Think about it, man. It just sounds cool saying puma. And if I can find a way to strap a saddle on it and ride the puma, power to me. The mighty puma. Puma, coyote, and vulture. That would be mm-hmm. quite quite the force to reckon with. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on. So the way the format goes is that for this face-off segment that we decided for this episode is that I sent John three topics. And he sent me three topics. And then we have to put in, you know, our answer to those topics. Now, the topics don't necessarily have to have factual answers. The trick to this is that our answers are going to be very opinion-based. But that being said, we still do have to also argue our opinion to each other or try to explain why our opinion is the correct opinion in that sense. You know, it's there's not a wrong answer aspect to it. And keeping that in mind, it did uh, it did alter the face of some of the answers I decided to use. So without an ado, moving on. Uh, first, I uh, submitted... Who is the best Star Wars character? Now, preface this. I think when it comes to Star Wars, what makes it very difficult is that up until we had, let's say, the sequel trilogy, you had the prequels and you had, you know, the regular. And I think if you were to ask this question 10 years ago, who the best Star Wars character was, I think the easy answer that almost anybody would say would be Luke or Han. Would I be wrong, John? <clears throat> Sorry. Um, no, I think you'd be about right. I don't know. That's that's not where I'm going to go, but, you know. It, it's, it's not necessarily where I might go either. I think the hard thing about this question is, like, growing up, I think every kid wanted to be Luke Skywalker because the fact that, hey, he has the lightsaber, you need the Jedi. But when you get older... And the older part of you says, well, no, I want to be Han Solo because he's the cool guy and everything. But it doesn't necessarily mean that Han Solo is the best character. I will submit for this, you know, topic right here that if I had to pick a character that was the best, I would argue that it would actually be Chewbacca. An interesting pick. It's an interesting one. John, what's your pick? And then we'll discuss this. See, and I had it kind of along your lines. You have to almost separate it from, because you don't necessarily want to go with your favorite, because your favorite character doesn't necessarily mean that they're the best character. Because, like, for me, favorite character is probably Luke Skywalker, like you mentioned before. But I will fully admit that he is probably not the best character. I think, for me, he's, you know, he's up there, obviously. 
and he's probably up there for best characters, but not, in my opinion, the best. For my pick, I went with Obi-Wan Kenobi for my pick. No, I don't disagree with Obi-Wan. I I think there are some things that work against Obi-Wan in terms of picking him as the best character, but that's more for you to discuss than for me. My uh, My argument for Chewbacca is this. So I sat there and I had to put a lot of, you know, just long thought into why is Chewbacca the best character? He has a presence in all the trilogies. He has presence in even movies that are not in trilogies. He's a character that I feel is often very undercredited as a character. I mean, he's there in Star Wars. He's doing important things. and. The problem is, is that, you know, just because we can't understand Wookiee language, it kind of works against him. But he's always there. He's obviously very a compassionate character. He's a character that you understand his story arc, especially if you knew nothing about it and only learned about it in Solo, where it's out of gratitude, you know, to Han Solo that, you know, he's with them. But, I mean, here's a character that also equally cares about all the other characters in the actual series itself. Here's a person that's equally brave and selfless in what he does. You know, I, I had to think about it. I mean, it would be almost easy to go with Han Solo, but I think Chewbacca is just one of those characters you sit there and I don't ever see a downside to Chewbacca, which is why I think he's one of the best characters. Yeah, it's hard to disagree with that. I mean, I think, but I think the way you said it there, I think it's right like there is, is he's one of the best characters. I think it, I find it hard to give him the the best category i think just because he's i don't know i don't know how to quite say it i I don't want to say he's one note because he's definitely not a one note character but i think he just doesn't we don't get to see chewbacca do a whole lot to kind of grow his character you know he's kind of just this he he tends to get relegated more as like the sidekick character um i think everything you said about him you know he's a very compassionate character he's you know you can and i think you know peter mayhew and you know the new guy whose name i'm not even gonna try to pronounce because it's like norwegian or something i think they've done a very good job of you know developing him and you know giving him some character and personality without you know ever speaking you know word of english and you know that's definitely to their credit but i just i don't know i have a hard time giving him best character just because i don't think he has that growth that you want to see in some of your better characters all right then Tell me, why Obi-Wan? I with Obi-Wan. I mean, he's one of the few characters we kind of get to see start out at, you know, a fairly young age, although I suppose nowadays, you know, you get, you know, and see him all the way to the, to old age, although now with the sequel trilogy, I guess we get, you know, we get to see Luke starting on fairly young, so I think he's supposed to be a teenager in those, you know, the original trilogy starting out. Um, and I will admit that, you know, Obi-Wan it would be nice to see a little bit more with him. That's not, you know, stuck in the clone wars era there. So I think that's why I'm kind of looking forward to the new series, but I mean, he's, he's a character. You do get to see some growth and, you know, he's, you know, in the first movie in Phantom Menace, he's just, you know, he's, he's a Padawan. You can kind of see that he's definitely, you can tell in his later stages of being a Padawan, but he's still got a few, you know, like when he's first introduced to Anakin, he's just like, Oh, who's this, you know, another tag along. He's just kind of like, Oh, whatever, who cares? Um, but even by the end of the movie, then he kind of, you know, after he goes through what he goes through in that movie, he gets some growth there where he's, you know, willing to take on training Anakin after Qui-Gon dies. And throughout the rest of the, you know, the prequel trilogy, you get to see him just, you know, A, kick all sorts of butt, but I think he's the one kind of just that 
grounded character around Anakin that he really needs. And you also get to see a little bit of nuance, like in just his, you know, interactions with everybody, you know, the way he treats Anakin, the way he treats everybody else, and just, you know, he's that leader in the Clone Wars that you want to see. And even if you get into the Clone Wars cartoon, you get to see even more of that, you know, quite a bit there. Um, and then in the original trilogy, you get to see him at, you know, at the end of his life and, you know, you know, as a Force ghost then, and see him kind of take on the, the tutor role and get to see him kind of do things a little bit differently because he saw the way things he did before and, you know, it didn't quite work out. So he's trying to do Luke differently. You know, you can see he's got regrets from the way he did things before. So, so Obi-Wan is my pick. I would say there's a lot of elements that you can like about Obi-Wan. I feel if there's a reason to like Obi-Wan, I, it's because in all honesty, I feel he is probably the, one of the better protagonists of both the prequel trilogy as well as the Clone War series and everything else. I think what Obi-Wan's biggest flaw is, is that he's not a good original trilogy character. And I and by that is that it's not I know Alec Guinness absolutely did not like the role of Obi-Wan, and that's why, you know, he wanted him to be, you know, killed off or wanted minimal to do with it. So I never get that feeling of, you know, when you watch, you know, Obi-Wan's performance from Alec Guinness, that it was a passionate performance. And I also, you don't ever really see him do much. Nothing that really outside of, hey, I mind tricked a guy, you know, you don't really get to see a lot of the aspect of the Jedi. I think the other thing I always hate about the original trilogy is just how wishy-washy a lot of like his explanations are to Luke about, well, from a certain point of view, he did kill him. And hey, we're not going to tell you I have a sister and all these other little things here. But that's more on Lucas than Obi-Wan as a character. But I, I would definitely say he's a prequel MVP, but I don't think he has a strong enough presence. Maybe had they done something where they did make maybe Rey Kenobi in the sequel trilogy that might have helped bring back like Ewan McGregor to maybe help, you know, help pad up some of that Kenobi stock. But no, I think that's the only reason I, I can't say he's the best character. Yeah, and I'll give you that. I mean, the stuff in the original trilogy, you know, is a little bit, you know, weak. And I think, but I think the stuff in the, in the prequel trilogy kind of elevates that a little bit. I mean, if we were just talking the original trilogy, yeah, he probably wouldn't even make like top five at all because, he, yeah, like you said, he just doesn't have a whole lot to do. He kind of just sits around, hangs out on a log on Dagobah or wherever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that is one argument that I can't argue against. Yeah, as I said, this is going to be more opinion based. I'm sure anybody listening to this is going to easily find a way to disagree and say, no, so-and-so is the best character. But, you know, then you get your own podcast and, you know, we'll figure that garbage out then. You debate it on there. Yeah, that's right. I'll let down. Or tell us on our Facebook page what idiots we are. Yeah, do that. No, don't do that. I don't want to fight. You do you. Yeah, I do me. All right, John, you uh, pick one of your topics. Uh, the first one for mine is I'm going to go with best board game for new gamers. And I put that kind of clause in there just because it is kind of a different, at least when I'm picking out board games for, you know, like we've got some people over <clears throat> how much experience a person has playing, you know, some of the newer board games that aren't Monopoly or the game of life or whatever definitely plays a part in which games I pick, you know, because some games are a lot more in depth and a lot more 
to them rules wise and whatnot that you need to pay attention to. So, um, so for, for this particular time, I went with just for beginners gamers, um, and maybe down the line, I'll do one for more experienced gamers, but, um, this is where we at. What do you have for your, for your pick? Oh, you're not going to see yours first. I see. Well, I'll, I'll, well I'll, I'll go because I've kind of got two actually, I suppose. That's but, not right, John. You can only have one. Oh, okay. Fine. You stay one, man. You got to edit your list down. Okay. You, you go, next topic, you, I'm going to say I got like 19. You yeah. son of a bitch. All right. You I go, I'll, I'll, I'll whittle mine down to one. All right. So using the criteria John set forth when it comes to a board game for beginners, I chose Candyland. And here's why. <laughs> I'm kidding. Because it's very basic. All you have to do is draw cards. <laughs> There, there, there is no strategy in Candyland. Let's be very clear here, because you're just at the mercy of what the cards do. So, I, yeah. you know, there's, it's not even the same thing with shoots and ladders. There's not a strategy to shoots and ladders unless you're really good at hitting that spinner, so it goes and lands in that right number. Uh, no, the game I chose as probably being one of the best for beginners. I went with uh, a game that I love playing a lot still, even as an experienced board gamer, and that's King of Tokyo. And the reason I went with this, the premise of the game is, is that every player is a monster and the goal is to either win by either killing all the other monsters or accumulating enough victory points in order to reach 20, which is then another way to trigger victory. I like the game because it's, I think, not overcomplicated. There are expansions that can add complexity to it later on if you choose to play with those expansions. But Otherwise, you have a game here where there's not a single strategy that you can use to win the game. There's Sometimes you're at the mercy of a dice roll, but sometimes also there's some gambling involved where, hey, you're really hoping that certain dice come up. But I've, I've lost this game to people that have only played it once or twice because, hey, for them, they were able to get the right amount of victory points. Or maybe two people got too focused on like trying to screw over this other person. The other guy came right through. There's not, I think, a single solid one way to play this game. There's a lot of different ways I think you can go approach in the game itself. But I feel it's a game that has an easy learning curve and is forgiving to those when it comes to learning curve, trying to figure out what the best way to go is. It's basically more of a violent version of Yahtzee almost in some ways when you think about it. It's just now giving different parameters to how you win in Yahtzee. So uh, I say King of Tokyo, I think is probably one of the best games for an introductory board game. Yeah, that's a solid pick and definitely one that I thought of as I was thinking about. It wasn't wasn't one of the two I ended up settling on. But yeah, and I think the way you said Yahtzee is, I always describe it as it's Yahtzee meets King of the Hill, basically. Um, But yeah, King of Tokyo is a solid pick and I can't really dispute that at all um because that's certainly one you can go with um the one i'm going to ultimately go with is a little bit different style of game um it's one we've played quite a bit and again just like you said with uh, king of tokyo it's one even as experienced gamer that we enjoy playing um and technically the whole world right now is kind of in the middle of playing this game in that one aspect and that game is the resistance um it's kind of a bare bones game it's basically got a couple decks of cards um that you don't even really deal with as regular regular decks of cards. And um, the reason I say that, actually, I'll dive into it a little bit here, um, that the whole world is, is into it, is that the game, uh, what the heck is it? Among Us is basically a video game version of the Resistance. The way the Resistance works is you have a team of at least five people, and I think you can go up to ten, 
and you're basically this band of resistance fighters against whatever this evil empire thing is um, that you're fighting against, and you're you're go going on missions to help defeat this empire. And the only problem is that on these missions, there are potentially spies that are working for this evil group, and you have as the resistance fighters, you have to figure out who these spies are and basically complete missions without them on them because if the spies go they're going to fail them and if you fail too many missions then you lose the game and the spies win um and the people in your group that are playing are kind of you know you're either a spy or you're one of the good guys and you just you it basically ends up just being a game where you're pointing fingers at everybody else you know it's a bluffing game um and it's a heck of a lot of fun it's really easy to learn um once you've played a quick round people kind of get the idea for it it goes pretty quick so you can get a few round games in um, and you learn more and more each time, you know, like different strategies and how to, you know, how to react. And just it, it's almost like playing poker with people because people have certain tells and, you know, when they're the spy or when they're not the spy and how they behave and how they don't behave. So it's, it's kind of an interesting look in people's psyches and everybody we've always played it with has always enjoyed it. I think it's a good game. I think it's very fun. I think the only thing that's a caveat about the game is that. It helps if you have played poker, I think, in some ways, or you're good at controlling your emotions. There's times that I've played this game with certain people, and they, some people, they just, you know, as you said, have those tells. They just can't hide it. And I think one thing that's good about this game is when you do have new people that have played it for the first time with you and you haven't played with them, part of that is the interesting discovery aspect of, all right, How's this person going to do? What approach do they go? I know whenever I play the game, I'm never the traitor. That's the most obvious thing that everybody should always, and you should always listen to me. Yeah. And on the flip side, whenever I play it with my wife, she says, John is always the traitor. Even if he's not the traitor, he's the traitor just because she does not trust me one iota when we play this game. Yeah. What does that say? So I, I don't know. I, I think it's definitely a very fun game. I think it's a game that. It is almost like almost like an old school parlor kind of game that you can play. I think it is good though if you can play with people that are good at being kind of devious and sneaky. It adds almost a new layer to it where, you know, can can somebody sell themselves? And the, the reason I brought up the whole thing about, you know, me never being a traitor is that everybody assumes I'm the traitor, but that's also because of how I carry myself sometimes. So a lot of times it's more of a fight me trying to prove that I'm not. And Yeah, and I think the one caveat I would put with this game, and part of the reason why I originally picked two games for this topic, was that is that if you've got a group that just is not into the whole playing into it, like you know, just you know, like if they're just like, okay, here's the mission. Oh, we failed. Okay, on to the next mission. You know, like I, you need a group that's going to be fun and you know, interacts and kind of gets into you know. A little bit of role playing. I mean, I wouldn't say it's full on role playing, but you kind of have to play the part and you know be willing to point fingers at people and just you know get into it. I think you're going to have a lot more fun than if you did. Everybody's just like, okay, here we go, next round, and you're you know done in five minutes because you just you know don't care and don't act it out. Uh, I think the tack on to this too is that you have to have five people to play the game, a minimal of five people, and I think that can be also a detriment to uh, how much you play it. King of Tokyo, you can play it two players if you want and go up from there. So, yeah, that is the other bad aspect is you do need those five people. Um, and I would say just, you know, like if you have played the game among us, you would probably love the resistance because it's basically the same thing, just not online. All right, then. 
my uh, next topic I have. I've uh, been going through and I've had my NES Classic that I play and I have my library of games that I was kind of reorganizing on my shelf, like old cartridges of NES games. So the question is, what is the best original NES era game? And man, this was a tricky one because there's iconic answers and then there's what you is your favorite answer i know my favorite answer isn't necessarily going to be the your john's for sure and i know it's not going to be a lot of other people's but some of the games I had eliminate there were some games like the mega man series there's a couple games like mega man 2 i feel mega man was always that perfect balance of you know it was unforgiving with some of the timing of the jumps but that's also one of those things that taught you the mastery or perfection or there were, again there was no one way to play or go through all the different boards you know some weapons work better on other bosses you have you know games like uh, zelda which once again rewards the building of the or the acquisition of various tools and equipment that help you get further in future dungeons there's the mario games and you know some of even like your classic uh games like dragon warrior and uh, final fantasy your japanese role-playing games and it was tough i'm like what game would i consider the best of the nes era and the one i went with it's a game that i always have a great amount of fondness for i own the game in both in the cartridge as well as on the nintendo store and it's an interesting hybrid game i'm gonna go with the game River City Ransom. And the reason why is because it's a side-to-side fighting game, much akin to what you would find in Double Dragon or some of those other types of side-scrolling fighters, except the difference is it's one of probably the most unique NES games and how it turned almost like a side-scrolling fighter into almost a RPG as well. And the reason why is because you can get money and as you go from like area to area, there's different stores you can go to and different stores you can buy new techniques that your fighter can use. Or you can buy certain types of food or things that increase your certain statistics of your character, more strength, more agility, more speed. And, you know, there, there's again, it's not a single way that you can go through playing through it itself, but the premise of the game is is that your girlfriend was kidnapped by this evil gang leader and you have to beat up all these other gangs as you go through area and area to finally get to the school and rescue your girlfriend and it can be played two players and ultimately this was actually one of the games that's a huge inspiration to a lot of the feel and how scott pilgrim actually came to be as a comic as well as a movie Funny enough, they made a video game version of Scott Pilgrim, which almost mirrors River City Ransom perfectly. It was unavailable for several years as it was delisted from the uh, Xbox Microsoft Store. It is now being re-released now within this next month or so. Fun game, but I I have yet to feel there's never a time that I'd never wanted. To, I always like to experiment and play different things or find out what different items did in River City Ransom. So. Yeah, I'm going to say that's my favorite. An interesting pick. I don't know if I've ever actually played River City Ransom, so I can't really argue one way or the other on that one. Yeah, you should. It's uh, it's fun. Yeah, I think if you got a Switch, I'm trying to remember if you can buy it or play it online. I think with, you can with the Switch. So 
Yeah, I might have to look into that. I know because I know I've heard you talking about it before as something that you you enjoy quite a bit. But yeah, like I said, that was just not one that ever fell on my radar back in the day or or currently. Um, my pick is one is going to be much more mainstream and one that you're probably going to find on a lot of lists for favorite or best uh, Super Nintendo games. And I'm going with Mario Brothers Three or Super Mario Brothers Three, I suppose I should say. Um, I've always been a fan of like the side-scrolling platformers. I'm those are probably one of my favorite games out there. Um, and this one just, it hits all the sweet spots. It's got, you know, great, you know, pixel art graphics in it for, you know, for the, for that day, day and age, it was really good looking. Um, and there's just the different ways you can play through it. I mean, if you decide you want to play through it straight through, you know, from world one, all the way through world eight or whatever it ends up on, you can do that. Or you can, if you want to try speed run, you can get some of the warp whistles, which are fairly easy to grab when you know them. Um, you know, and skip around a little bit here and there if you want. And it's just, it's just a great game. All the different items are, you know, kind of varied and do different things. And it just, you know, the little things you can trigger with the the coin ships and the hammer brothers that are out there. And, you know, you get to pick your, pick the worlds you want to go to. And you don't necessarily have to do every single one, you know, unlike the earlier ones where you kind of had to go through each and every level, you know, world one, 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 two, and one, three, you know, this one you can kind of bounce around a little bit here and there and, either do every single one or not if you didn't want to so um yeah i just have fond memories i remember one time for sure you know over at your place we'd rented it and staying up all night and playing it and you know it was certainly not the only time that i've spent multiple hours on that game because it's just it's an awesome game i would say it's definitely one of the most iconic games it's definitely a game that I feel that's the Mario game that hit its stride and set the blueprint for almost the majority of all Mario games that would come after that. I uh, definitely fun, many hours put into it. I think that game also introduced one element and aspect of video games that I absolutely learned to hate with a heartfelt passion. I hate waterboards. I hate the Mario waterboards. Anytime there was a mandatory Mario waterboard, I would seethe full of anger deep down inside. It was not the first waterboard that would teach you such loathing and anger. Uh, a year or two earlier uh, than Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle video game, there's that one waterboard on the dam level, which was just as equally nightmarish. But if you want me to be pissed, put me in the water and I'll get mad. Oh, look, your character can't move that well in the water. And oh, everything's dangerous and stupid waterboards. Yeah, I don't think you're alone in hating the Waterbirds. They've been they've been a pain in the ass ever since what the first Mario, I think. So yeah, not fun. Yep. Screw you, Waterboards. All right. And screw you, Waterboarding. Eh, I don't know. We get a lot of valuable information. I'm just kidding. But how reliable is it? Right. Let's be very clear. If I'm being tortured and just telling you anything gets stops the torture, I'll start telling you anything. <laughs> all right what's your uh second one you want to go on with uh the next one i will go with is the best like comic book weapon or item you know this could be you know thor's mjolnir captain america's shield i mean comic you know the infinity gauntlet comic books are fairly rife with all sorts of MacGuffins and items that characters have that define them you know like i mean what's thor without his hammer or captain america without his shield so it was kind of a what's you know the best story or paste pot pete without his glue gun that's right exactly good old paste pot pete he's good stuff um he's now the trapster yeah it's a little bit more you know i don't know 
because he realized Pace Pot Pete was one of the worst names possible. Yes, yes it is. But, you know, hey, you do you, I suppose, once again. You do you. Um, I went with one of the probably more obvious ones. I went with Green Lantern's ring just because, I mean, it can do pretty much anything you can imagine it can do. You can fly with it. You can you can go underwater in those underwater boards with it and, you know, be just fine. You know, you can make weapons. You can make tools. You can make, you know, it's kind of defined by, the, you know, the limits of your imagination. You know, I mean, the only problem with it is if some kid decides to walk up you and pee on your little shield you have, his pee will go right through it because you do have that yellow weakness to it or whatever so you know but what are you gonna do um but yeah i mean i don't know what else i can really say i mean it's green lantern's ring everybody kind of knows its deal um yeah it's good stuff i would say the green lantern ring is a fun interesting tool if not for and it depends on what era green lantern because the original green lantern his ring did not work against organic things like wood uh yeah. so, so that was the and it was weakness was against yellow. So those are kind of big weaknesses right there, knowing that somebody could basically just paint something yellow and all of a sudden, like your magical ring is rendered innate by it. But that being said, it's powered by your imagination. So it's as good as your imagination is. I always feel though, if you were to give the green lantern ring to a basic, you know, just average person, one of two things are going to happen. One, they don't have any imagination. So you get like the old 60s era. I just thought of a boxing glove, you know, like you always used to see. Or worse, they think of something amazingly imaginative, but they don't think about the repercussions of it and realize, oh, yeah, I may have thought this up. But wait a second, that right there also has the potential to hurt you as well. And yeah, I, I, I feel that's always the weird thing about the ring. Yeah, it could backfire on you if you're, you know, a moron. Or you get just some degenerate, like, I thought up a giant dildo. I'm just going to slap you around with this big green dildo. Yeah, there's that possibility as well. <laughs> the Green Lanterns just aren't screening their applicants well. They're also <laughs> having like employment issues. So it's like, yeah, you're worthy, I suppose. Can you pass a background? Can you start Monday? <laughs> Well, what happens to the previous Green Lantern of this sector? Uh, you don't want to know. We're still trying to scrape them off the wall. <laughs> what? It's best not to ask. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I had problems with this one. I, I think there's so many different great tools. All of them have, I think, some sort of weakness or thing. Like, same thing. Like, lightsaber is like an awesome thing, but... Again, you give a lightsaber to an average person, they're going to probably cut their own limbs off somehow just because, you know, it's just what happens. You give like a laser sword and people just aren't used to swords in general. You know, then you have things like Thor's hammer, but, you know, are you worthy to lift it? And uh, I went with Cap's, Captain America's shield. I always thought it was just a cool weapon. Anybody can pick it up and use it. Granted, you know, the way he uses it, it's downright amazing where he's throwing in a ricocheting off things. But, you know, even without having to master the ability to throw it, you know, being built out of vibranium and finding creative ways for applications to use it, you know, it, it's, it's a cool thing. So I, there, there, there's a lot of things that can beat Captain America, even with his shield itself. But 
I always feel that like right there is like the kind of cool weapon to have right there where if I saw a guy walking up to me and all he had was a shield, I would probably be scared because if that's all he's got right there, that means he's can do some pretty bad stuff with that shield to me. Yeah, you would think so. Kind of like the clown with the coat hanger. Ah, uh, yes. The good old clown with the coat hanger. Yes. All, All right. right. So, what, so what do you got next? So my last one, and when I submitted this to John, he had asked me a question about it because he was kind of, I don't know if you were just confused or you were trying to figure out what the angle was to this question. Yeah, it was just, well, we'll go ahead and introduce it and then we'll, what we can discuss. All right. So organizing some CDs and music, I came across a lot of CDs, which to those that are old or younger, they're these magical discs that go in and plays music. And I have a collection of them, and I was kind of just reorganizing shelves as I was reorganizing my uh, media room where I have all my stuff. And I saw a lot of albums, and I started correlating. A lot of these albums came out in 1996. Then I started thinking about it more, and I took a look down like a list of albums of what came out in '96. And 1996 is a unique year, I feel, in the '90s. And the reason why is because the first year or two of the '90s, you still had, I think, like some hair metal and some rock bands that were, you know, still on top of the world. You had. You know, your Guns N' Roses, your Metallicas, but you still had the remnants of bands like, you know, Def Leppard and Warrant. You still had, you know, a lot of like hip hop R&B bands that were out there as well. You know, there was still, I think, a much more narrower band of what music was being focused on. And then you had the grunge era of music, which, you know, lasted, I would say, almost maybe from 91 to 93 94 and i think after that you had this kind of just ambiguous alternative era that kind of happened around there and past 96 i feel is when you get really into the tlr era of music where mtv really dominated and controlled what people listened to and there was very heavy dominance of pop music and rap music that controlled the airwaves rock music almost just disappeared completely until new metal would kind of almost come in right at the end of the 90s but 96 there was not one i think genre that was stronger than others and there was so many different creative albums that came out during this time i mean john when he you know messaged you know me about this he said that there was a lot of good albums but he said nothing that was fantastic. And I think that's kind of the point of why I chose 96 is that there's a lot of great albums. I think that came out this year, but none of them I would really call legendary in some ways. Yeah. There's definitely some good stuff. There are a lot of good stuff there, but I mean, I was, you know, when you sent it over, I was expecting something kind of like, you know, that year of movies when it was, you know, like Forrest Gump and Shawshank Redemption and Pulp Fiction or the, you know, even in music, I forget what year it was, but the year that like Super Unknown came out for Soundgarden, there was like, you know, just a ton of, you know, just legendary was, albums. And I was, was that like 94, maybe? That was all the same year. That was 94. Because 94, okay. I was like, yes, Super Unknown from Soundgarden. You had Weezer's debut album that came out. I mean, there was, again, that, that was uh, Ill Communication by the Beastie Boys. There were so many things that just stormed the music world. And again, yeah. it, it's not like 96 has bad albums. 
But this is one where I don't think there's like a slam dunk winner. And that's why I think it would be easier to debate what was the best album of this year. Yeah. And I think when you, when you initially sent it over, I was expecting something more like that, where there was just, you know, like the year of 94, where there was just a ton of awesome, you know, groundbreaking albums. And you know, okay, pick which of these groundbreaking albums is the best one and, and whatnot. Instead, when I kind of looked over the year, I'm like, oh, there's some good stuff here, but nothing, you know, like I told you, I think nothing really stood out. I was like, is there something I'm missing? Like, what's going on? And then you kind of, you know, explained what you just explained a minute ago. So, so yeah, it was just kind of caught me off guard, I suppose I should say. And before I say who I think should be considered like, you know, the album, you know, an artist of that year, I mean, Tool had their seminal, you know, album Anima came out, which was an amazing album. Rage Against the Machine had Evil Empire. Metallica had Load. Cake, uh, they had, like, their probably breakthrough album that they had during that time. One of my favorite albums from Local H, Better Off Dead, was there. Even in, like, in other industries, like Tupac, you know, he had himself, like, All Eyes on Me, which was uh, considered a legendary album. You had the Fugees. Uh, or Fugies, or however you want to pronounce it, which, you know, dominated. Soundgarden had their final uh, studio album with Chris Cornell come out during that year. Weezer had Pinkerton, and there was just a lot of albums that I feel that kind of stuck out. If I had to say yeah. which album I feel is the best, though, and I think had, I think it was something that, the one thing that I feel that 96 had is that there was good to be different. That's when Metallica's load album is like, we're going to try something different. You know, Cake, their style of music, very different. Even like other albums that came out of the year, like Butthole Surfers with Electric Larry Land. Once again, great album. I uh, I went with Beck Odele because that, I feel, proved that Beck wasn't a one-hit wonder with Loser as you know well as the Mellow Gold album. But I also feel that album right there showed how truly creative he was. He worked on that album with the Dust Brothers, who had previously worked with other artists, such as the Beastie Boys. And I, I feel it's one of those albums that is such an amazing and different album that came out at a perfect time when there was no dominant genre. And it was able to hook people in with just all these different styles and types of music itself. And this is the album that I feel cemented Beck in his career to the point where anything that he put after this had heavy weight and clout with it. So uh, I chose Beck's Odalie. Yeah, that's a hard one to argue. Um, and was definitely one I was considering. And, you know, I could easily, you know, just say, yeah, that's the one I picked. But it wasn't just because I'm not as big a fan of it as you are. Um, but it's definitely solid. I mean, I was you know, the thing I thought when I was looking at the list, I was looking at, at least of albums listed on here is that there's a ton of bands on here that really, you know, that I really like that released albums this year, but like none of them are like my favorite album from that band. It's always like, you know, it's they're all like the, you know, maybe second or third favorite album of theirs, you know, like Metallica, like you said, had a bit, you know, released load that year, but that is certainly not my favorite album from them, you know. Um, it was a year where everybody, I think, tried something different and realized. I think they, I think nobody knew what the a music audience out there wanted. Nobody knew what yeah. to. So they kind of just went. A lot of people went their own way or did things that were new and unique, like 
Rage Against Machines, like, you know, Evil Empire album. That's an amazing sounding album in so many different ways. And nothing else sounded like it at that time, which, you know, again, like if you were to tell me that a band was going to have a bunch of like trumpets and horns as an addition to cake, I think also that was the year that the squirrel nut zippers was kind of also coming big. That's when swing dancing was kind of going all over the place and swingers was just coming out. So, you know, there, there was no one thing out there. Yeah. Which I think is, you know, almost kind of admirable that there wasn't one big thing dominating music at the time. Um, the one I ultimately picked is one you just mentioned actually, and that is evil empire by rage against the machine. Um, for kind of the reason you said it didn't sound like anything out there at the time, you know, just kind of groundbreaking. I mean, they were, you know, I mean, when you think about Raging the Machine, wasn't really out there for all that terribly long before they broke up. You know, they did what three? Was that their last album, or did they do one more after that one? No, they had four studio albums and like a live uh, album because uh, the first one was self-titled, and Evil Empire was their second one. The Battle of Los Angeles was their third album that came okay. out in 1999. Uh, and then 2000, 2001 is when Renegades came out, which was their last studio album. But that was also an album of all covers as well. But yeah, I mean, I think Raging Against the Machine is kind of one of those bands a lot of people tend to forget about how groundbreaking and amazing their work was. And it just, you know, like not even just in their musically but just you know lyrics you know what they were singing about and stuff where they were a very politically charged band that i think these days would be you know they'd get a lot more attention and they are they still are they still touring or that get put on hold with all the COVID stuff yeah i got put on hold yeah um but yeah i mean with everything going on as politically charged as the world is today you know it'd be awesome to see them come out with a new album and see what they could do but i think that was the one that was kind of one that one and like you said Odelay were the, the two biggest ones and tools i suppose were the ones that kind of jumped out at me as being you know the the most prolific from that year but i mean there's you know a lot of good stuff i feel from 96 music wise but just not a ton of great stuff you know like you said i think it was just people were trying new things doing something differently maybe you know getting ready for whatever it was their next big thing was but i mean lots of good music just not like anything super solid i don't feel which isn't a bad thing i don't think i don't think that's you know to beg on the bands that put out stuff that year just you know was a different kind of year, a different time. Yeah, I, as I said, I think the reason I went with Beck is because I feel that album it legitimized Beck and pretty much set him up for his career. Which, with Tool, I think they would have been popular regardless. Tool also would have that weird thing where, like, they wouldn't have like albums come out for like five to seven years at a time between like albums. So I think that always kind of worked against. But uh, Nemo was such an amazing album. Uh, just the overall sound style and feel of it. I think with evil empire, again, just it, nothing else really sounds like it. I don't think there's any duds on that album either when it comes down to, you know, overall music. So yeah, I, I went, I went with the and matter of fact, one thing I'll recommend if you want to hear something really unique, John, uh, several months ago, Beck went to uh, Paisley park princess studio and did the Paisley park sessions where he recorded uh, three tracks. He did a different, very different version of where it's at. Then he also did some other uh, Prince medley as well and a couple other songs. So uh, I would recommend give that a listen. But yeah, that's what I feel the 96 uh, was all dominated by was Beck with two turntables and the microphone. Yes, indeed. All right. Your last one. My last one. We're going to go back. Um, 
with where we started, actually. We're going to go back to Star Wars, and I went with what is the best era of Star Wars. Um, obviously, the three main ones, which, well, although certainly not the, the only ones, are, you know, you're going to have the prequel trilogy era, the original trilogy, and the sequel trilogy. Um, but you've also got, you know, you could go with the Knights of the Old Republic's era. You could go with, you know, some of the expanded universe stuff. There's actually a new one that they're going to be doing with their publishing series called the old republic where it takes place i want to say it's 600 years in the past where the republic's kind of at its height jedi are at their height um and it looks to be interesting although that hasn't actually come out yet i think that comes out early next year i want to say it got postponed just like everything else because of covid um so yeah so what is your favorite era for star wars i went with i had to think a little bit on this one i ended up going a different way than i originally thought i was and i went with the prequel trilogy i think Gross. <laughs> yes, I know. Um, probably not, you know, a lot of people, not their favorite movies, and, you know, not my favorite movies either. I mean, the two of my, two of my least favorite Star Wars movies you know, are the first two movies there. But I think the more you think about it, I think that there's a lot of potential there for just storytelling. I think the Clone Wars was just kind of the tip of the iceberg there where, you know, they took that little time frame in between episodes two and three and just expanded on it with so much with just you know just that one war which granted it was you know galaxy spanning war you know but you could see different worlds you could see different characters races you know all the different conflicts that that brings up and that's just that one little time period i mean even just looking at the movies themselves i always thought it'd be interesting too to look in between episodes one and two and like you know explore like you know anakin's time as a padawan which isn't something they've really they haven't really expanded a whole lot on which i've always been kind of surprised i think they've maybe done a handful of books in there or something like that but nothing all that, you know, and I think that's an era that you can look at too, you know, see what, you know, like what were the Sith doing then? What was, you know, Palpatine up to while, you know, he was getting ready for the the Clone Wars to get revved up and stuff like that. I just think that there's a lot of potential there, you know, as opposed to like the original trilogy era where you've got the Empire and the Rebellion. There's some good stuff there and that obviously laid the groundwork for everything else. But I just think there's a lot more potential, I feel, with the with the prequel era, even though it's not obviously everybody's favorite time for you know set of movies Hmm. well my argument is it was the prequels (laughs) whoa no i i'm gonna say this if you separate the clone wars cartoon and story from the prequels then yes the clone war area era i think was downright fantastic i think uh i think the hardest thing that they did with the prequels is make Anakin likable. I think that was always the biggest issue is that you have this guy who is supposed to be the protagonist, but the hard part is you kind of know how his story ends. And part of it is like, well, now you're seeing how he fell. That's great. I just don't think they make and made Anakin likable enough to really have the emotional turn you needed to make that turn work. That's why I say that like uh, Ewan McGregor and Obi-Wan were the MVPs of the prequels because Anakin couldn't carry the story. I think Obi-Wan was a better point of view character and until you got to the Clone Wars and you had Ahsoka to know. Yes, yes, definitely. So, so my era that I chose, and I had to think about this one because... That's, you have a couple movies, you know, you know, you can go from various series. I went with something very specific. I went with the comic book 
era, 2015 series era, which was post New Hope pre Empire era. And back in 2015, when uh, Marvel being part of the Disney giant, Disney, of course, acquires Lucas. And from there, Marvel then has the ability to make Star Wars comics. And they released a few comic series. One of them was a Star Wars series, another was a Darth Vader series. And with those two series right there, they're both set uh, concurrently at the same time. It was after the destruction of the Death Star, but before Empire Strikes Back. And what I like about that series and about that time of the year, you know, our time of the era for Star Wars is this, is that you watch, you know, The New Hope and it's, you know, good movie, has all these things. But then you have the one thing I always loved about Empire Strikes Back, which points out a lot of things about New Hope, is that they blew up the Death Star. All right, the Empire wasn't the Death Star. The Empire still was this massive thing that still controlled the majority of the universe. So, you know, when you see Empire and see that, yeah, whatever you did in New Hope didn't matter. Now, I think what sucks is that you didn't, up until this comic series, you didn't know, I guess, the journey of the hows and the whys. And when you read both, you know, all the comic series from around that area, including the Dr. Aphra series as well, you get a good feel of what Vader was going through as he was going through the discovery and knowledge that his son, he had a son that was still alive and that his son was the one responsible for Death Star. And you have the journey struggle that, yeah, Luke Skywalker was the hero, but afterwards there's still the rebellion trying to struggle and find a way to, they had a foothold, but how do you capitalize on this? You know, them struggling to build the rebellion, them struggling to, you know, not get caught by the Empire and realizing that, yeah, as great of a thing as they did by destroying the Death Star, that is still insignificant to all the stuff they had to do, you know, past that point as well. And that's where you see so much different character development. So I would say it's the comic book era, which uh, the 2015 series, uh, which is post New Hope pre-Empire. You got quite specific there. Um, yes, I did. But yeah, and I, I can't argue that. That's an awesome comic book series. And I think if you know you're somebody who hasn't read the Star Wars comics and wants to, those you know those initials, Darth Vader series, Doctor Aphra, the Star Wars one are all excellent stuff with a lot of character development. That, like you said, you know you don't get in the movies, and it's nice to see that journey from from point A to point B and what they had to go through to get there. And you know, it, it's it's some good stuff. Well, you see a lot of the sacrifice the rebellion made too. the, you know, just get themselves established. And you also see how they punched back at the empire, but you know, the rebellion got stronger, but guess what? So did Darth Vader and the empire at the same time. Yeah. I remember that one storyline. I forget what it's called. It's around issue 50 though, where the rebellion's kind of gathering their forces to, you know, figure out what they're going to do. And the empire comes in and just friggin' just annihilates them and just, it just, really ramps up just how hopeless the rebellion had it and how much, you know, what they had to fight up fight against. And it was, yeah, just good stuff. It's, you know, what happens when you misplay your trust in the wrong person and what happens because of it. Yes, exactly. Be careful out there. All right. Well, I think we covered almost uh, all our topics for our face-off series. So if anybody right. has suggestions for future face-offs, feel free to submit them to our Facebook or just contact us directly. But 
Yeah, I think that should wrap up this episode. Yes. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, uh, we are working our way to our 50th episode at this point. We're trying to think of something special about it, but I think I'm just going to sit here in the basement listening to uh, Sounds of Silence by uh, Garfunkel. Simon Garfunkel, and we'll just do that for an entire episode. How's that sound, John? There we go. Just an hour back-to-back of Sound of Silence. Maybe throwing like some Mad World in there. Um, yeah, good, good, good stuff. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Oh, yeah. Anyhow, thank you for joining. This is Mike Spragle. And this is John Lundquist. We will catch you next time. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good one.